Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. Today is Wednesday, July 11th. I'm Jonathan Last, sitting in for Charlie Sykes. I'm joined today by Bill Crystal and Andy Ferguson. Uh, gentlemen, it's good to have you here. Andy is furiously following the Nats game on Facebook. No, I don't have the Facebook app. That's where his life is that's these what days. That's what I've got to do. I've got to get the I was just Facebook making fun app. of the fact that Bryce Harper is somehow an all-star starter, to fact, despite the fact that he is batting at a lower average than Max Scherzer, getting in on reputation alone. Well, Should yeah. Bryce Harper, well, that, the, if he was a man the, of honor, would, the 22 he, would he refuse his slot and say, you know, I, I haven't earned it this year. I'm going to give it to somebody else. Well, he's batting 218, but it's the 22 homers that he's getting rewarded for. Let's not forget the slugging aspect Let's not aspect forget the long ball. This. Chicks dig the long ball. <laughs> they I do. They do. Andy's such a loyal Nats fan, you know, even though he came to this slightly late in life. Did you become a Nats fan when they moved here yeah, in 2005? Yeah, yeah. You, ad- you were a quick, a fa- an early adopter. You know, I've been to so many Georgetown cocktail parties that I have now just accepted the fact that I'm a Washingtonian. And, you know, I, I'm not a Bears fan anymore. I'm not a White Sox fan anymore. I'm a... And you're White Sox. This is not why Cubs. this is why Trump won. If I could just say, you know, people like <laughs> coming into the giving up exactly. You know, next because yeah. the Nats are the globalism in baseball. <laughs> Good right? point. The, the well, if you hung team. out with you know, like I do with Sally Quinn at her Georgetown salons, you you guys would start to see the world a little more realistically too. I think. Juan Soto, are you a Juan Soto fan? Oh. I watched him for the first third of the season in my minor league park. I was going to say he's he's he's, he's got to be a last favorite. He he is. Flash and I spent many many nights watching him, and we knew instantly we were like, this guy has you know rookie of the year type potential. We we knew every time we saw him that it might be the last. Yeah, nobody expected it either, except yeah. for you guys. Yeah. you know we're we're out there, finger on the pulse of what's going on in the minors. Yeah. Bill, how are you? It's good that you still you're one of the Welcome back from the Everyone talks leadership. a good everyone <laughs> talks a good minor league game, but you actually go to a large number of minor league games. People like me, we go to the beach, Andy and I've done, I think we've done, we've done this yeah, together once. Gone times. to the beach, we, we were three hours away in, in the Delaware, Maryland beaches, Ocean City and Rehoboth and Bethany. And right near there is in Salisbury are the Delmarva Shorebirds. And when we go to the used to go to the beach with the kids a lot, one or two weeks, we'd always try to go to one game. And that, I love minor league baseball. Delmarva is such a funny name, too. It's like that's <laughs> Delaware, Maryland. It's very imaginative of them. You know, how do you capture the area? That, that, how do you capture the area that incorporates parts of Delaware, Maryland, and Virginia? You take the first three letters of each state and put it's them like together. Arlandria. Yeah. You, ever, you know, people who live in Arlandria, which yeah. is this tiny little 500-square-foot uh, municipality between Alexandria and Arlington. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. Delmarva, are they Orioles? Like the short-season yes. single A? Yeah. 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 It's pretty, it's, I mean, college basketball, college basketball, college baseball has obviously kind of destroyed the minor leagues in the sense that they are the minor leagues now and they're yes. good and they're very good. Especially the, the best, AAA. The better colleges. Single, yeah. And the, yeah. yeah, as opposed to, you still occasionally get someone, I guess, I don't follow things closely enough these days, who comes up in single A and was recruited maybe especially, you know, in Central America or something and people didn't notice him and then he can make it into the minor, into the majors, but I guess it's pretty rare. Well, Soto yeah. started the year in, in he single started A. In single a. Is that right? He, yeah, he's 19 years old and was brought. You know, no college experience. A lot of the guys, the Latin guys, uh, that's what it is. They they don't do college. They go right to the minors. But yeah. for American kids, they all. If you're a promising player, very very few get drafted and go straight to the minors without doing college. Yeah. 
Well, excellent. Okay, that's uh, good. We discussed baseball. For the, got that out of the way. Got yeah, that, yeah, that's the important. That's what everyone's working hard here. You know, you might think there's no news. I mean, there's a little Supreme Court nomination, a little NATO falling apart, a little immigration trade controversy, and all that kind of stuff. But here at the Weekly Standard, we are focused laser-like on the on Nats minor league baseball. and on your other, single what, what, A and which ball. is the one you? But you go to the Prince William, the Potomac Nationals, the Peanuts. But they play at Prince William. They play in Prince William. And they're they're a Nats farm team. They are the long-season single-A team. And because they're so close, we get Strasburg pitched there last night. Oh, Uh, And so we get all of the big league players who are just rehabbing for a few days. Instead of going to AAA, they just come here because this way they don't have to move. They just Uber down. That's fun. It is fun. And you've told me that when the big diggers come down, they all show contempt for the the kind of hilljack – they really do. They they, we, had, we had Rendon there for a couple games early this season, and I think he hit 867 while he was there for three <laughs> games and never broke a sweat. I mean, literally would just not even go above a jog uh, at any facet, either defensively or offensively running the bases. He just had so little interest in being there. Do they still have all the stuff for the kids? That's what I like to tell Marva. It's the, you know, run, run the base. I don't know, all kinds of contests and competitions and Between every goofball clowns. Oh, yeah. and Come yeah. out the dizzy bat race, which <laughs> yeah. spin around the bat, and then like, you watch the – everybody laughs as the five-year-olds then fall over while trying to run across a finish line and stuff. It's great. It's excellent. Americana. Uh, it it's is good. Americana. So Brett Kavanaugh uh, is in all sorts of trouble. Big, big open letter coming out of Yale Law School. Last night, you guys see this. Uh, they are the students at Yale Law are really ashamed that Yale is so interested in power and prestige. <laughs> this is the students' language. They say they, they cannot believe that Yale Law School is so invested in power and prestige that it would be proud of a former graduate, Brett Kavanaugh, being nominated to the Supreme Court. Um, this is because Yale Law School, if I'm not mistaken, they just tweeted like a they put out a press release, a press release with a very. Prof- Polite but perfunctory congratulation to a Yale law. Grad. Well, the, the letter suggests that it was done with un- unseemly rapidity. They say only an hour after Trump announced, mere hour, that, yeah. mere minutes. <laughs> then they were out there trying to exploit it for partisan political purposes. So I guess I shouldn't. I mean, I would imagine, especially if you are uh, of the leftist persuasion, there are all sorts of good reasons, I suppose, to be opposed to Kavanaugh. And I'm sure that you could, once we go through his 50 million pages of documents, there you'll be able to pick out five things that make him look like the history's greatest monster. But the extent to which, so these kids, they, they say this is an emergency and that Kavanaugh is going to make them less safe. Isn't it? Yeah. And it, it, like, they literally don't understand what words mean. It isn't, I mean... <laughs> It is not an emergency. Kavanaugh will not directly make mm-hmm. anybody less safe. It's wh- no. It, what I, is happening? It also here? says that that millions of people will die as a result of this, and I hate to tell them, but millions of people are going to die. Pretty much everybody is going to die, whether Brett Kavanaugh <laughs> is on the Supreme You're Court or not. Case for them. Yeah, this is <laughs> the kind. This is the kind of heartless conservatism that some of us have like. Compassionate yeah, type. Yeah, yeah. I thought we moved beyond this, Andy. There with compassionate Sorry. conservatism. You know, it. Uh, Bill, you spend a lot of time on college campuses. I mean, these are law students, not college students. But does this surprise you, or is this just par for the course? I think I read somewhere that there's one professor who's also involved in this, and may have. Uh, it up. I would say that, I don't know, it's par for the course, I think, in the sense that activists, well, A, in the tr- era of Trump, everything is crazier. 
and be the activists can gin up quite a lot of activity at the, some of these places. You want to say or you want to believe that it's still a minority and that, you know, some of the people just signed it weren't thinking about it. And for all I know, most people haven't signed it. And so we shouldn't get too upset about this. But I am a little freaked out by going to campus in the last few years. The degree to which we have had a mainstreaming of what I would have said, and I think everyone would have said six, eight, ten years ago, was really a kind of extreme point of view denying people platforms to speak, you know, and then starts off denying genuinely unpleasant and disagreeable people platforms to speak, so it's a little too hard to get revved up on their behalf, you know, and then suddenly it's Charles Murray, and that's just a few people, and most people who are decent say uh, they may be a little soft in terms of punishing the hecklers, but they they do say it shouldn't happen, and then two years later it's, you know, I don't know, maybe it has to happen, because really there is a way in which Charles Murray is indirectly legitimizing this, and two years after that it's, and it's Incidentally, I don't think we should ever read anything by him because it's really threatens my, as you sort of see, you know, the safe space. feel unsafe. And so I don't know. I, I'm a little, I mean, Andy's been looking at this too, but I, I'm, I'm a little freaked out by the la- developments over the last seven days. And final point I just make is, and the number of students I run into, I used to have the view 10 years ago, we all wrote about political correctness. We published articles about it there, how bad things are on campus. But when I would meet with intelligent young conservative students, and I say, look, I mean, I know it's bad, it's unpleasant, it's, it's annoying, it's, it's uh, not what we would want a, the best college, colleges and universities to be, but it's okay for you, isn't it? I mean, you can still study what you want and say what you want and get a good education. And they would mostly say, yeah, it's a little uphill, it's a little occasionally I have an issue in some class. I've been struck the last couple of years talking to students in Washington, come to Washington, some of these summer programs and stuff, that they really, it is bad. They really say now, I don't just I don't speak up in some classes. You know, I want to go to law school. I don't want to get punished in my grades. And I'm pretty confident the, the professor will punish me, which is, and I also the social ostracism or being reported to some dean for saying something at a, in a, a dinner, you know, I was speculating about some, 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 some issue in political philosophy or something about whether the genders are the same or not. I mean, it really, or biology, I mean, it really, I don't know what you think, Andy, but I'm well, a little freaked out by it. This is the, the, the genius of uh, the language manipulation, which left-wingers have always been very good at, uh, but the whole use of the word safe to mean not not threatening physical violence or something. It just means I kind of feel bad. It's become an utterly subjective criticism of somebody. You make me feel unsafe or he made me uh, turn this into a place that isn't a safe place. And that just means I don't feel so great about this and you might have offended me or something. So there's no way to repudiate that. Can you say, oh, yes, you, you did too feel safe. You know, you can't. There's nothing to say well, you about say you it. You are safe, and and this Whether word you feel is it or not. You are physically. It safe. creeps this into official documents too. That you know we are going to be a university for, that where people can feel safe. Well, that's not much of a university, at least by my old. Yeah, no. I, what you standards. want is a university where people are safe, not where people can feel they are safe right. but this feel the, challenged. Right. The opposite of safe in terms of intellectual intellectual premises yeah. and presumptions, and, and and the fact that it's gone from guest speakers being occasionally heckled or whatever to into the classroom. And for me, that's a huge difference. I mean, I, obviously, I want you to be free to speak and there shouldn't be heckling and uh, heckler's vetoes and so, so forth of speakers at campuses. But at the end of the day, you know, if you get deprived of one guest speaker, you can still get a good education. If you really get to the situation where you can't teach Nietzsche, because Nietzsche begins, and I asked one professor about this particular, begins uh, 
the preface, I think, of Beyond Good and Evil, supposing truth is a woman, what then? And he has certain implications. I mean, he's making a very big suggestion about the subjectivity of truth, but he's also saying something in his view about how one deals with women and how one then has to assault truth. And he, and he goes on about this himself. I mean, he's not, not you know, making this up. But you can't really teach that because it is, you know, it's it's violent, you might say, or what Machiavelli says about unsafe. fortune. Yeah. And if one person in the class is made to feel unsafe, do you no longer teach the works of nature or Machiavelli or something? I mean, you really are on a slope towards genuine, you know, curbing of freedom of thought, not just of, you know, a few eccentric speakers, I think. So back to Kavanaugh himself, how on a scale of like one to Bork, how bad do we think the these confirmation process will be? And you've been sort of pessimistic on the, the possibility of them getting through before the election. Well, you know, I, I'll tell you, uh, as someone who, who admires Kavanaugh, I was heartened by um, how well the thing was staged, his rollout, as we call it. Um, because the next morning, um, there was a uh, an op-ed from a liberal left-wing um, Yale Law professor in the Times saying, hey, you know what? This guy is really brilliant. He's good. He's, um, uh, he's been a good scholar. He's been a good judge. Basically giving cover to any other liberal who wants to say that. And then, as we were talking about before, the Washington Post had a really sweet op-ed from a woman whose child goes to school with Kavanaugh's school, uh, Kavanaugh's daughter, and they know each other, and he's been very nice to the daughter, and all, you know he runs carpools and things like that, coaches the, the basketball teams. So somebody somewhere had to have this all planned out. And one of the things I think, even even after Bork, conservatives didn't learn it was um, you have to really be prepared for this kind of thing. And it, it, that suggests to me that that he actually has smart people who are trying, who are going to be trying to get him through this. Thing. Are I you still pessimistic on his odds? Of no, I'm not really. Doing it, no. no, not. Well, what did you think? I mean, the president outsourced to some degree the selection of the list of these judges to the Federal Society. And I think also the PR, in effect, this was not the, simply the typical White House yeah, operation. Absolutely. This was done, and it was done. In a, they obviously, and this is where it was good to have a short list of four three or four days ahead of time, which meant that if you had 10 people, maybe 25 or 100 people working on this, you had time to line up, you know, different people yeah. who knew each of the four who could write the kind of op-ed that Andy was talking about. And I think they've done a pretty good job. I was a little, I would have said ahead of time that I think any of the others on the short list would have had been politically a stronger pick. Uh, Midwest or Amy Barrett, sort of unique situation. And um, Kavanaugh is susceptible to inside the Beltway, D.C., pro-big business, you know, not that much pressure on the red state Democrats to vote for him, still at risk of losing a couple, though, of the moderate Republicans, Collins and Murkowski. So I now think they must have also talked to Murkowski, to Collins ahead of time. She's been pretty, John McCormick's reported on this for us, and she's been pretty mild in her comments on on uh, on Kavanaugh. And so I, I think it looks pretty good. And also, it just turns out that despite being a, you know, inside the Beltway lawyer who worked in the Bush White House and all this kind of thing, one of the funniest touches of the announcement was when, I think he said this in his brief remarks, that he met his wife in the White House. Did, yeah. did you remember that? He said, it's wonderful to be standing in this building. I've worked here and I've made, which is such a kind of classic inside the Beltway thing. Like, you know, swampy. Well, a, a little swampy, swampy, yes. But having said that, it does, I do think here the, the humanization of him, he does seem to be a very nice guy, a community guy, and 
coaching the girls' basketball team, and they got that out a lot. More than half, I think, of his law clerks have been women. I mean, I take it that he's just taking them on the merits, but uh, that's also a nice, you know, cuts a little bit against the heartless, you know. So uh, I think I'm pretty optimistic that he'll do okay. It will be ridiculous, of course, and the attacks will be hysterical and and all that, but I just... It is. I have to say, the Republican choices are. There is kind of a model. If I were a young Republican lawyer, uh, the first thing I do is leave the heartland and come to Washington. Because you look at John Roberts, um, Gorsuch, and now Kavanaugh. These are <laughs> these truly are swamp creatures in the sense that they have spent their entire professional lives here. They they settled down. They did political work. Then they went and made a ton of money at a law firm. And then they got appointed onto a district or circuit court, and you know that that's um, that's a path to glory now. Apparently, you just never have to leave Washington at all. So one of the things that struck me during the course of confirmation is the extent to which the elected Democrats were really hostage to the base. I mean, the, the Democrats—they were being forced to walk a plank they didn't want to. They uh, sort of pushed McConnell into uh, deploying the nuclear option for judges, which was probably tactically a stupid thing. They probably should have waited to have that to now. But they they felt, as a political calculation, that they had to do it because otherwise the base wouldn't accept, would see anything they did as capitulation and surrender. Are we going to see the same thing here or are the, the elected Democrats themselves going to get like legitimately hysterical, not like frog marched into hysteria? Because looking at like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and Cory Booker showing up on the steps of the Supreme Court uh, the night that Kavanaugh was announced and making their speeches about how, you know, it, it looks like an impossible task, but it's not. We can do it. We have the people with us. And it, it just struck me as they're now like selling false hope to they don't actually have the numbers they can't stop the nomination well they could stop it i look way. a lot i mean gorsuch was helped a lot by his actual performance at the hearing and and it's important that kavanaugh do well and there could be things that emerge in his in these fifty thousand pages or five million pages you say of, of that he was involved in as staff secretary of the bush white house and all that he can't it doesn't that can get blown up fairly or unfairly or he stumbles on something at the hearing so i, I you know i think if i were the democrats i'd worry a lot more about really good preparation for the hearing. That's their one moment to derail them. Or oppo research that just discovers something. Ginsburg got derailed in 87 for uh, smoking dope as a Harvard Law professor. Um, finding something like that, uh, yeah, I think the screaming and yelling isn't going to change anything at this point. I, it's funny, I, didn't even see, I haven't seen the nuclear option mentioned much in the Mm-mm. coverage, but you make it, that's a very good point, I mean, to remind us of that, that Obama, Harry Reid, at the request of the Obama White House, had, had gone to the nuclear option for the lower court judges, right? And they could get confirmed with 50 votes, but not the Supreme Court. And then because they insisted on this for Gorsuch, McConnell was able to rally the Republican senators, some of whom were reluctant to do this, Very and get this, yep. get this vote to, you know, get rid of the 60-vote requirement for Supreme Court justices as well. On Gorsuch, after the hearing, when it was pretty clear he was going to be confirmed, and when it even, as it turned out, three Democrats voted for him, Whereas if they had held the 60 votes, it would actually be a little harder now, I think, with only 51 Republicans, for one thing, to sort of say this is the moment that, you know, right before the election coming up in 2018, this is the moment. So it is a case where their fervor in a losing cause 
actually has now damaged their prospects yeah. this time. And and I remember, I mean, if you think back a year to what this was like, the elected Democrats knew that. I mean, they all none of this, it wasn't just strategic miscalculation, but the, the base wouldn't let them. The base said, uh, this is this is capitulation if you don't force them to go nuclear here. And you can imagine now, with now that it's the swing vote and we are four months or six months before the election, it would be a much, much harder vote, I think, to to force Republicans to invoke the nuclear option here. Yeah. But, uh, but I mean, in terms of the actual confirmation, I mean, the political, the base's wish for opposition corresponds with the Democratic senator's own views, so far as they have serious views, and with even the politics of their states in most cases. So we shouldn't exaggerate how many Democrats there are who would want true. to vote for Brett Kavanaugh. There are about, you know, about five, six, seven from states that Trump carried easily who are up for re-election this year who m- might want to jump ship. And I suspect if it's clear that he's going to be confirmed, if they've got all 50 Republicans, I think the dynamic of this is funny. Either he falls short, he loses, let's just say, Collins and Murkowski because something comes out. He once said in a memo to Bush that he he's living for the day when Roe v. Wade is overturned and that will make his life complete. Okay, so then- Can we torture so then, more? Yeah, yeah. So then <laughs> Mr. Collins, President, then Collins, torture. Then Collins and Murkowski go south and at that point he loses. No, no Democrat goes from- or if he's got the 50 anyway, then I think you have a bit of a Gorsuch phenomenon where Manchin in West Virginia, maybe Heitkamp in North Dakota, right. and Donnelly maybe go for him. I don't know that many more do that, maybe one or two more. And even there, there'll be huge pressure because I mean, the Democratic donors, the Democratic activists, I'd be worried. I was thinking about this. If you're Joe Donnelly, you want to be probably a yes vote in Indiana, which Trump carried by zillions of percentage points or whatever, and which probably is a conservative-oriented state on these kinds of issues. On the other hand, you know, you could get a write-in campaign from some left-wing, think of this, you know, activists saying this is a total outrage, the swing vote on the court, Roe v. Wade, this guy's collaborating with the enemy, write-in, you know, law professor, so-and-so who's, you know, and I don't know, couldn't that person get three or four or five percent of the vote and conceivably doom someone? So they are in a real pincer, a few of these Red state Democrats. Yeah, I think professional Democrats will understand if Manchin or uh, Donnelly um, vote for him because one thing that they all understand is I'll lose my election if I don't vote for him. Um, it, but the non-professionals, the activists, the people who are really uh, trying to push the party to the left, they're not going to understand a pragmatic uh, kind of justification for a vote for Kavanaugh. Uh, so across the pond today, this this morning, this afternoon, President Trump sat down with people from NATO and charged that Germany was uh, totally controlled, I think was Captive, his I think. Captive, captive to Russia. Both yeah. totally controlled by yeah. Russia and captive to yeah. Russia because they get all their energy from Russia and it doesn't make any sense and there is no defense of it. Uh, all this in public. Um, thoughts? Well, nope. he berates them always about the defense spending, <laughs> yeah. which he makes it seem as if, which they should increase, but he makes it seem as if that's like a direct contribution to NATO or, you know, it's all a little bit. So I mean, there's a legitimate, as always, with just often with Trump, there's like a legitimate point lurking somewhere in this whole farrago of whatever, um, which, you know, I mean, 
non-Trumpy administrations like the Obama administration were unhappy with and tried to pressure the Germans not to build the direct pipeline to Russia, which is a totally corrupt deal because the former German Chancellor Gerhard Schroeder is head of that company, I think now, or at least getting making a fortune from yes. it yeah. and lobbying yeah. on it. And also, it's all, on, you know. On the other hand, you know, we every company, every country has its own domestic issues and so forth, and that's usually not, you don't raise them at the beginning of what's supposed to be a kind of unity meeting of NATO before you're off to go to go see. Putin. So I, I think the degree to which Trump really dislikes the traditional American alliance structure, he said that, and he dislikes traditional American foreign policy of the last 30, 40, 50 years, which involves intervening occasionally in wars and, and uh, standing with our allies, even if they're a little bit feckless and annoying and opposing our, these dictators most of the time. He really doesn't like that. And I, I guess I'm a little struck that he's more insistent on his likes and dislikes than he was early on, where it seemed like McMaster in particular, but maybe Mattis and even Tillerson were able to kind of walk him back a little bit from this. He seems more, less in the mood to be walked back these days. Yeah, I mean, it's as though he walked off the campaign trail and into the presidency with exactly the same mind that he campaigned. And that, to me, is one of the most amazing things about this. Watching this presidency is, um, you know, it, it, the thing about the Russian pipeline, people have been saying that in the foreign policy establishment for several years. Um, but Trump actually came out and said it. People have been complaining about Chinese theft of intellectual property. For, and it is a disgraceful arrangement that they force companies to go through. Everybody's been complaining about it. He actually complained about it, and then he's trying to punish them for it. It's really amazing to me how many of these things that he's acting on have all been sort of under the table. Everybody knows this is true. Everybody knows that the Europeans say they're going to pay more for defense, but they're not. You know, and now even now they're saying by 2024 we should be up to the where we should be now, and all that. Everybody's been saying it, except the president. And by God, now the president comes out and he's saying it, and he's actually going to try and punish them for it. Um, it's kind of watch what you wish for a little bit, because these are really the the positions that establishment types have taken over the years. They just didn't want to do anything about them. So. It is. I mean, there is a, a strange disconnect with the fact that he is willing to say all these things to our allies, but is never willing to say them to our adversary. Right. So, you know, Kim Jong-un is a tremendous negotiator and a brilliant man, and he doesn't want to say anything to upset the apple cart there, but he's willing to beat Angel Merkel over the head. Um, but what what struck me about it, I mean, I would, do you guys think it is fair to say that Trump is at the very least deeply skeptical of NATO is that, yeah, I that think he fairly, said that explicitly. Yeah, he said it, it was absolutely. So, yeah, so geostrategically, what does it mean to have both major political parties in America being skeptical of that alliance? I mean, well, I don't think the Democrats are. I mean, they were basically under Obama. Where I mean, no, Obama, if anything, was very pro-European. I mean, in that respect, well, kind of pro. He wanted to defer to the Europeans. Yeah, I mean, he used them as an excuse in Syria not right, to get in enough. because British lost a vote and stuff. So. But I think more broadly, I think it's very bad. Personally, whatever the hypocrisy of foreign policy, the foreign policy establishment, and so forth. The, yeah, to have a Trump administration, sort of uh, following an Obama administration, and the one thing they have in common is neither is much interested in American leadership and standing up to dictators. Um, that's not probably a good thing for the world. So I'm I'm pretty worried about it. All right, it's been a long show. Uh, Bill Crystal, Andy Ferguson, thanks so much. We'll do this all over again tomorrow. Thanks, Jonathan. Thanks, Jonathan.